Welcome to Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to The Last Watch by J.S. Dewis. Chapter 26 Adequin stood at the helm of the Drudger's ship, stared at the blank viewscreen, and waited. They'd been at warp speed for almost 30 minutes and would be decelerating shortly to land at the coordinates they'd found in the logs of the ship named after a viator term that roughly translated to synthesis. They were headed straight back outward, which was such a bad idea. Not to mention irrational and reckless. But she couldn't find a way to care. It might have been a long shot, but it didn't matter. They'd lost too many aboard the Argus. She had to know she'd done all she could to find the Tempest. And if it wasn't enough to risk it for her own reasons, she found plenty of justification in doing it for Lace's sake. It had been her final request, and Lace was the closest thing Griffith had to family. Adequin had to do whatever it took to honor that, or she'd never be able to forgive herself. Jackin sat harnessed in the ratty co-pilot's chair, throwing anxious glances at her while the kilometers ticked by on the main display. He'd insisted on coming, and she'd been too panicked to argue. He'd set Puck to take over his task of figuring out how to restart the gate, then grabbed Arandus, Warner, and two other oculi while following Adequin to the airlock. She hadn't wanted to endanger anyone but herself for this admittedly rogue mission, but Jackin hadn't given her a choice. Though they didn't need more than two to adequately fly the ship, she knew she'd be glad for the extra bodies if they ran into another enemy vessel on the way. The deck rumbled lightly as they decelerated from warp with a flash of light. An outward sea of absolute black welcomed them on the viewscreen. Jackin opened the scanners, and a single blip 20 kilometers away sent a sharp spike of adrenaline through Adequin's veins. Light she ordered. Jackin engaged the ion engines and flew the ship forward, slowing after a time to swing their spotlights across the void. It tugged back as it hit the edge of a hull, dragging along a plain expanse of gray aerosteel until it came to a rest at the numerical call sign along the port aft. SCS-4146-02. Adequin fled the cockpit and took the steps down to the main deck two at a time. Rake, wait, Jackin called after her. He scrambled to follow, fumbling his helmet on, calling out rushed orders for someone to lock down the helm and keep the engines warm. Jackin, Warner, and Arandis barely made it inside the small auxiliary airlock before Adequin sealed the door. Helmets on? On. Warner called through the suit comms, strapping a plasma rifle to his back. On, Arandis confirmed. Go for it, boss, Jackin said. Adequin pressed the airlock controls and with a hiss, the room depressurized. Her feet lifted and the hatch door opened. She reminded herself not to rush, to stay calm, no sudden movements, then swung out and released the retractable tether from outside the hull. She pressed away from the synthesis and launched herself toward the hatch of the Tempest. Inside, the Tempest's halls sat silent and dark. Thin strips of red emergency lights lined the entrance corridor. 
Jackin's fingers danced across his suit's nexus. Life systems are online, he confirmed. It's in standby. With a hiss of air, he released his helmet, and Adequin did the same. Warner and Arandis set their helmets aside and took up their rifles in both hands. Adequin raised her pistol and started down the hall. Jackin hovered to her right, Warner and Arandis off her left shoulder. They cleared the entrance corridor quickly and silently, room by room, seeing no signs of life or struggle. Down a deck, the cargo hold and life systems were similarly quiet. At the aft of the ship, Adequin led them up a ladder to the engine access deck. She didn't know whether to be anxious or relieved by the piles of drudger corpses they found littering the corridor. She signaled the others to keep an eye on the hall, then knelt beside a cluster of bodies. They wore the same jumpsuits and carried similar weaponry to the drudgers she'd killed aboard the Synthesis. This had to be the rest of the missing crew. Adequin turned a few of the bodies over and examined the wounds. Though a handful of poorly aimed laser shots had singed their uniforms and left char marks on their gray skin, most had been cleanly executed by a mixture of perfectly accurate plasma bolts and precise knife slices. They put up a fight, Jackin noted, standing over her, gun raised as he kept a wary eye on the corridor ahead. Looks like it, but where are they? Jackin only shook his head. Adequin left Arandas to keep watch on the corridor, then motioned for Jackin and Warner to take the left side of the hallway while she went for the first door on the right. Inside the small common room, some of the lockers along the far wall sat ajar. Their contents lay strewn across the floor, clothing, playing cards, tablets, and drink bottles, all collected along one wall. It didn't seem to be the result of uncleanliness, but rather some kind of turbulence. Adequin chewed on the inside of her lip as several scenarios ran through her head. Had they pulled away from the divide, then the drudgers happened to find them? Or had the drudgers also been riding the divide, then shot them down somehow? The Tempest hadn't appeared to have any hull damage, but she hadn't really waited for the full report before running to the airlock. She took a breath and shook it from her mind. She needed to focus on finding the crew. They would have all the answers she needed. Adequin ducked back outside and continued down the corridor as Jackin appeared in a doorway across the hall. Clear, Jackin said. Adequin didn't spare a look back as she slipped into the next room. Clear, Warner called from the hallway, just as Jackin said it again, though he couldn't have cleared another room that quickly. Adequin swept every corner of the room and a small supply closet, but found nothing out of the ordinary. Warner called another all clear as she went back into the corridor and turned toward the last door on her side, the engine access room. The red screen beside the closed door indicated it had been manually locked. She tried to swipe it open, but the screen flashed a warning. Biometric clearance required. She pulled her glove off and stuck her thumb to the pad. The door slid open, accompanied by a waft of burnt metal and charred rubber. And there he was, lying on the floor in front of one of the ion engine access doors. Her feet crossed the metal floor in a few short strides, and she slid to her knees at Griffith's side. Griff? 
he didn't stir. Sweat beaded on his forehead, and the fine lines on his face appeared deeper than ever. The gray peppering his beard and hair somehow seemed even lighter. A bloody Legion-issue combat knife lay on the floor beside him. Her fingers fumbled to his neck, his skin blissfully warm, searching for the spot just below his jaw. She pushed out a few purposeful breaths to steady herself long enough to sense it. A sliver of relief cut through her when she finally felt it. His heartbeat strong, his thick chest raising and lowering slowly. He was breathing. Jack, she called over her shoulder. She carefully looked Griffith over, but saw no wounds. Griffith, she said, shaking him gently. Wake up, Centurion. Her heart fluttered as he groaned. His head lolled from one side to the other. Griff, look at me. She held his face in her hands and turned his head toward her. His eyelids flickered, then opened, revealing bloodshot, tired eyes. They were the same warm brown, but in the dim light they appeared dull, as if the color had faded. Fuck, he grumbled, his voice a deep rasp, his brow creased. Quinn? He craned his neck and slid his elbows back as if trying to sit up. Don't, she gripped his shoulder to stop him. The door behind her hissed open, followed by the shuffle of feet. Find a bio tool, guys? More care. A grin tugged at the corner of Griffith's mouth as he stared up at her. I didn't even get off at the right stop, and I still found you. You really are my anchor. Her throat closed as Lace's final words sounded in the back of her mind again, the sincerity in the circuitor's soft brown eyes crushing the air from her lungs. She had to swallow down a swelling lump before she could breathe again. Griffith pulled her to him, locking his dry lips around hers. A few tears escaped the corners of her eyes as she clamped them shut letting the anxiety and tension she'd spent the last two days meticulously constructing seep away. The door hissed again, and a rush of boots squeaked across the metal floor. Adequin pulled away to find Jackin standing over them, eyes wide. He made a production out of clearing his throat, then said, Uh, when did that happen? The door slid open again, and moments later, Warner knelt beside her. Biotool, please, Adequin said, not sure why they were making her ask again. Yes, sir. Warner hopped back up and disappeared. How did you find me? Griffith asked. He ran a trembling thumb along her bruised cheekbone, and his tone hardened. What happened? It's a long story. Adequin said. How did you end up here, Griff? What happened after you left the Argus? We got on the divide, same as always. But after only a few minutes, we started drifting. The sensors kept going off, reading like we were steering into it. Or like it was steering into you, Jackin said grimly. Exactly, it was, Griffith said. I think it's moving inward. It is. Adequin said. Griffith coughed, then grumbled. See, this is why I needed a physicist.
She sighed. How'd you end up all the way out here? Griffith swallowed. Once I realized I was moving, I tried to edge us away slowly, keep in that sweet spot. But it was moving too quickly. I couldn't accommodate. Eventually, I had no choice. Either keep going and crash into or through it in a matter of minutes, or, well, I could rip away. Wait, what? Jackin said, eyes wide in disbelief. Are you saying you disengaged without slowing down? Griffith gave a short nod, then groaned and sucked in a shallow breath. Why didn't you decelerate? Adequin asked, slow down like normal and exit. It was moving too quickly, the angle too sharp. If we slowed down, I wouldn't have met escape velocity before it'd have overtaken us. Our only chance was to pull away with enough speed to rip free entirely. Void, Bach, Jackin cursed. How'd you pull that off? I locked the crew up in the Taurus chamber and took manual control. Adequin let out a sharp breath. With the crew locked in the Taurus chamber, where, for safety, everyone should be during the autopiloted entrance and exit from the Divide, they should have been safe from the effects of deceleration, even one as sudden as this had been. However, in the cockpit, Griffith would have been exposed. To what, she didn't even know. She wasn't sure anyone did. As far as she knew, no one had ever tried a maneuver like that before. At that speed, Jackin mumbled, running a hand through his hair. How'd you get enough power? Griffith cleared his throat. I overclocked the ions. That hacker kid told me how to circumvent the Legion shackles a while back. One of the circuiters, a Maeus something. Adequin raised her eyebrows. Puck? Right, more a thought experiment than anything. Never thought I'd actually need to use it. But it worked? Jackin asked. Yeah, but the force slung us away really fast, too fast. He shook his head, his demeanor wilting. There was this weird gravitational billowing almost. Thought every organ in my body was gonna explode. It worked, but tossed us around until I could get the engines under control. And we finally came to a stop. Here, wherever here is. Warner crouched beside Adequin with a bio tool and an armful of cartridges. She took the tool and switched it to scanning mode. A green beam shot out the front, then fanned into a grid. She ran the light over Griffith's chest. Jackin glanced back at the corridor. How'd those drudgers even find you guys? Shit if I know, Griffith growled. I'd barely gotten the tourist chamber open to check on the crew before they pounced on us. We took a ton of them out, but they overwhelmed us pretty quick. So I routed them down here to give the crew time to lock themselves back in the chamber. Then I shut myself in here to wait it out. I watched the door access on my Nexus. Looks like they just offloaded our cargo, then left. Why'd they bother offloading the supplies? Jackin asked. Why not take the whole ship? Engines are shot, Griffith said. And you know how drudgers are. Can we fix the engines? Adequin asked. Hard to say. His jaw flexed, eyebrows pinching together. 
and my mechanic got stabbed by a drudger. Ivana? Adequin asked. Griffith gave a grim nod. Last I saw, Yura was dragging her into the Taurus chamber. Not sure if she made it or not, or if any of them did for that matter. Nexus comms have been down. Have you guys been to the command deck? Not yet, Adequin said. Then they must still be locked in there. I'm not sure they'll be able to figure out how to unlock the doors without officer codes. Adequin looked to Jackin. Go get them out, we'll meet you up there. Jackin and Warner nodded their understanding, then took off into the hallway. The bio tool beeped, indicating its completion. Adequin pushed her hair out of her face with a heavy sigh, then took a look at the readout. Though there were a few lesser fractures and strained muscles, it showed no indication of serious injuries. She let out a sharp breath. The results should have reassured her, but the knot of worry bound even tighter in her chest. Griffith gave a pained scoff. Can't be that bad, Quinn. My imprints took the brunt of the trauma. He looked down at his bare forearms. The silver and copper squares shuffled wearily as he stretched his hand. I might have broken them. He grimaced and closed his eyes, sweat beating on his wide forehead. His teeth clenched, brow furrowed in pain. She'd seen him hurt before, badly at times. Countless stray bolts that his imprints weren't able to shield, Third-degree burns from not quite making it out of the blast radius of a grenade. And once, a knife slice across his neck that, if a medic hadn't been there to immediately cauterize it, likely would have bled out in seconds. Unfortunately, that didn't make it any easier to see him in pain now. I can give you something for the pain, she said quietly, if you want it. Can't hurt, he agreed. She unstrapped his vest, then unbuttoned the shirt underneath, revealing thick muscles marred with garish purple lesions. A few imprint squares remained, marooned among the sea of bruises. One copper square skipped back and forth along the same short path over and over, trying to pass back to its default location, but unable to make the journey. Maybe he really had broken them. She picked through the collection of cartridges, hoping he couldn't sense her deepening worry. She'd seen Griffith's imprints take the impact of a point-blank electromagnetic bolt without so much as a minor glitch. If this crash had caused them this much damage, she could hardly believe he'd lived through it. She couldn't imagine how bad the deceleration could have been if he hadn't had imprints to protect him. She found a localized painkiller, then loaded the cartridge into the bio-tool. He gritted his teeth as she carefully injected a portion near his sternum, then moved to the left, then right side. She got to her feet and called on her imprints to assist as she helped him stand. He towered over her, leaning heavily on her shoulder before settling into a semi-stable position. She kept hold of his forearms as he steadied himself. He closed his eyes and took a long, deep breath. You sure you're up for this? She asked. I can just take you straight to the ship. Just tired, don't worry. Hey. He opened his eyes and swept the hair out of her face. 
of Vitas Fortis. She gave him a tired smile. Avitas Fortis. He wrapped his arms around her and pulled her close. She laid her head against his chest, inhaling his warm scent. He let go, then put an arm around her shoulder for balance as they started for the door. After a few steps, he gained his stability back and leaned on her less and less as they approached the hall. Avitas Fortis, he said. She raised an eyebrow and looked up, but his weary grin had disappeared. He shook his head. Then she heard her own voice elsewhere. Avitas Fortis. Griffith's face slackened. They turned around. Back near the engine access doors, Griffith stood, his arms wrapped around her, warm eyes glistening as he smiled. Her hair was a mess, pulled up into a heap atop her head, and the bruise on her face had darkened to a sickly blue-green. She looked up at the much taller man, almost disappearing in his embrace as his thick arms pulled her closer. Adequin stared at them, but it didn't compute. She couldn't process it. Her mind knew what it meant, but at the same time, it tried to protect her. So for a fraction of a second, she ignored her panic and enjoyed the sight. They looked exhausted but happy, relieved that they'd found each other, and good together. That Adequin looked at that Griffith like she couldn't live without him. And that Griffith looked at that Adequin like she was the only person in the universe. Then reality began to seep back in. It was something she'd never seen before, never heard of before. She didn't think it was possible. A time ripple the wrong way? A time ripple that told the past instead of the future? It wasn't a thing. It didn't happen. The doppelgangers wavered and flickered, then disappeared. They stared at the empty space for a few heavy seconds. Quinn. She turned to meet Griffith's humorless gaze, and the pain that furrowed his brow had deepened into concerned shock. She opened her nexus. Jack. No response came. Jackin, Warner, Arandis, you guys read me? Only static in return. She looked back through the open door into the corridor, where another Adequin supported the weight of another Griffith, helping him limp down the hall toward the stairs that led to the airlock. Moments later, she wavered and flashed away. But Griffith remained, leaning on nothing as if her doppelganger still held up his weight. Then he flickered until he no longer leaned, but cradled his ribcage and walked off of his own accord. Shit, the real Griffith grumbled. He scratched his beard and watched, mouth agape. What's going on? Time ripples. He looked back at her with raised eyebrows, as if to say, no shit. But instead, he said, where are we? Where inward, far enough inward. She tried to conjure up the will to do the math, based on how fast it had been contracting when they left the Argus hours ago, but she couldn't get her mind to focus on it. We're about halfway between the first buoy and the Argus, or where the Argus was. 
but quite a ways inward. Where it was, he asked. She shook her head. Now wasn't the time to catch Griffith up on the last 24 hours. Now was the time to get the hell off the Tempest. Chapter 27 Cavallon flicked on the plasmic welding tool, and the end sparked to life in a white, hot blue flame. This is what it had come to. After almost an hour of poking and prodding at the stupid gold pyramid, Cavallon had started to question if he'd ever really seen the holographic screens come out of it in the first place. Maybe it had just been a fancy paperweight, obscuring something else on the console that had projected the weird displays. Gum-chomping pulled him from his thoughts, and he refocused through his protective glasses onto Emery as she stared at the impressively bright light. Don't look directly at the Ark, he grumbled. Emery pulled her eyes away and gave him a mellow grin. Apparently, she had been a trusted laboratory technician of Mesa's a few times in the past. Though her suggestions of the various ways in which they could attempt to destroy the object had been creative, they had not been precisely productive. Not that Cavallon had managed to offer anything useful himself. This was his strategy, after all, frying it with a plasma torch. He zapped every facet of the pyramid with the tool, dragging it along every etching and groove, but nothing happened. Whatever material it was made from didn't react to the 28,000 degrees of hot plasma arcing into it, didn't even leave a mark. He set down the tool inside, pulling off his glasses and gloves. He leaned back in his chair and crossed his arms, meeting Mace's gaze across the wide table they'd set up in the middle of the makeshift med bay. What about biometrics? Cavallon asked. Mesa pinched her lips together. Viators disfavored that manner of security, though it is possible. It would most likely be regulated to a single user, if that were the case. Then we should cut off the hand of the drudger captain, he said with feigned cheer. Try that on for size. Emery leaned forward. Except the EX just took the drudger ship to void only knows where. Think she's abandoning us? I assure you, Mesa said. She is not abandoning us. Please focus, Miss Flos. Emery shrugged and leaned back in her chair, chomping her gum. They did remove the corpses before they left, Mesa said. Though I am not sure if they have ejected them out the airlock yet, so that may yet be a possibility. Cavallon took his knife from the sheath and held it up along with the palm of his other hand. What about a blood sacrifice? Mesa frowned. Even if it was biometrics, it certainly would not be your biometrics, she said, scorn evident in her tone. Then her scowl faded, and she licked her lips and slid to the edge of her chair. She pulled the pyramid toward her, then snatched the knife from Cavallon's grip and dragged the blade along the palm of her hand. Mesa! His eyes went wide, and he sat up straight. I was kidding. She glared at the pyramid ruefully as her blood dripped down onto its peak. No marked change, she murmured. Cavallon's chair groaned against the metal floor as he stood. He grabbed a bio tool and a pack of gauze from the crates of medical supplies along the walls. Mesa continued to turn the pyramid over in one hand as Cavallon took her injured hand and held it flat, 
He disinfected it, then switched to cauterization mode and closed the small slice. Mesa winced, but her focus remained on the pyramid. Within seconds, the wound had fully sealed over with new pink skin. The nanite-enhanced cauterization would leave no scar. Emery grinned up at him, leaning her chair onto its back legs, arms crossed. Know your way around a bio tool too? You get more and more useful every time I turn around. Cavalon eyed her, certain any second she would tip over in her chair and ensure he'd be tending to her foolish injuries next. He wiped the rest of Mace's blood off her hand with the gauze. I was pre-med for about ten seconds before August. He shook his head. Before I switched to genetic engineering. I think you may be correct, Mesa said with a light sigh. Correct about what? He tossed the bloody gauze in an incinerator chute on the wall, then returned to stand across the table from her. I will test a few more theories, she began. But please see if you can find the dredger captain's corpse and return with its hand. You may take Miss Flos with you. For the love of the void, Mace, Emery growled, leaning forward until the front legs of her chair clanged back to the ground. Just call me Emery. Mesa ignored her. The hand alone will do. Wrist up. Without looking away from the pyramid, she slid Cavalon's knife across the table toward him. He grimaced and picked it up, returning it to the sheath at his hip. You got it. Cavalon kept his eyes on the ground as he and Emery passed two soldiers standing guard at the airlocks. He didn't know if they were among those that had been present during Rake's chat with the Legion, but he still imagined their heated gazes boring into him as he passed. Even if they hadn't known before, the news of his accidental admission had likely traveled fast. He still didn't know how he felt about that whole incident. Relieved, and maybe a little flattered, that Rake had bothered to stick up for him. However, it had come with a healthy dose of humiliation. Pretty much the only thing that could make this situation worse would be if he became known as a teacher's pet. The already rank mound of drudger corpses was not difficult to track down. They sat a few meters past the P4 airlock, piled beside the wall. Unfortunately, it seemed the captain had been one of the first bodies to be removed as he and Emery had to unstack most of the other corpses before they found the right one. Cavallon immediately recognized the one he'd killed from the wide gash along one of its flank plates where his knife had skinned off the fleshy covering. Then the second, gaping entry wound that had made it through the ribs and reached its heart, deflating it and draining its life beat by beat. Elysia to Cavallon, Emery snapped her fingers at him. He looked up from the corpse and stared at her. One of these our guy? She motioned to the bodies at the bottom of the pile. He nodded numbly, then knelt and turned one of them over. This is the one. He traced his fingers along his gold and bronze royal imprints. They were tired. He was tired. But he might be able to muster enough energy. I could just carry the whole body back, he suggested. She gave him a flat look. They already reek. We don't want a whole dead drudger back there stinking the place up. You heard the savant. Wrist down. He gulped and took his knife from its sheath, staring down at the steel-gray taloned hand of the drudger. He may have been briefly pre-med, 
but he hadn't gotten to the dismemberment part of medical school. He had no idea how to remove an appendage. Emery let out a disgusted sigh. Bloody void, you big wuss. She snatched the knife from his hand and without even the briefest hesitation, sliced the serrated blade deeply into its wrist. Kevalon had to look away for the rest, though hearing the wet, meaty sawing wasn't really any less nauseating. With a sickening crack of bone, he knew it was over. Emery held up the bloody hand and waved it at him, the taloned fingers flopping about lifelessly. Asset acquired, she grinned. His stomach turned, and he tried to return her smile, but he was sure it came out more of a grimace. A glint caught his eye, and he looked over at the dismembered drudger. Around its coral and teal-tinged neck lay a thin silver chain, half hidden under the collar of its uniform. Drudgers weren't known for accessorizing. Cavallon tried to ignore the bloody stump on the end of the captain's arm and reached to pull the necklace over its wide head. The blackened silver chain held a thin, tarnished gold medallion of three interwoven triangles. He exchanged a curious look with Emery, who shrugged. He pocketed the necklace and turned to head back down the hall, but three unexpected guests stood in their way. A pasty man with thinning black hair stood with his arms crossed in the middle of the hallway. Snyder, the rather angry circuiter that had overheard Rake's conversation on the comms earlier. Behind him stood the two airlock guards they'd passed earlier. A thick-set man with greasy brown hair and a tall, broad-shouldered woman who had a mess of old scars covering the left side of her jaw and neck. They both looked equally displeased. Hey, Mercer, Snyder said, a light smile playing at the corner of his thin lips. I was wondering where you'd run off to. Cavallon's heart sank. He gave a quick look around the empty hallway. For help? He didn't know why he thought that would exist. Have you met my friends? Snyder gestured to his two bodyguards. Their families were also displaced by the heritage edict. Small universe, huh? Guys, Emery groaned, holding up the severed drudger hand. We're on kind of an important mission here. Can your schoolyard bully thing wait? Snyder shook his head, and the scarred woman strode toward Emery. The top of Emery's head came up roughly to the woman's armpits, but Emery didn't cede her ground. All right, all right, hold on just a sec. Emery flashed the viscera-covered blade of Cavallon's knife, then pointedly wiped each side clean across the front of her pants. I should get the drudger guts off first. Wouldn't want you to catch their stupid. She jutted her chin out as she glared up at the tall woman looming over her. Y'all don't need any more of that now, do ya? In one swift motion, the tall woman caught the wrist of Emery's knife-wielding hand. Emery glowered as the woman wrenched the blade from her grip, then tossed it away. The clatter echoed down the silent corridor. Leave her out of this, Cavallon growled. His royal imprints shuffled along his arm, though they stayed mostly in formation as he fought to keep them still. He knew what sliding imprints implied, and that Snyder would see it as a threat. As much as he wanted to put the circuiter and his beefy cronies in their place, he was fairly certain that wouldn't fall under the category of shit-cutting. Snyder turned his forearm out to showcase the glowing holographic screen of his nexus. 
Guess what? Cavallon swallowed. You're gonna take the high road? Snyder's mouth curved up into a sneer. Your best friend, the EX, did something kinda stupid earlier. I doubt she's ever once done anything stupid, Cavallon said in the most level tone he could manage. Snyder nodded. You're right. I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time, but her mistake was in not fixing it afterwards. She's been a little busy, so I get it, but it's unfortunate for you. Cavallon raised an eyebrow. He didn't have the first clue what this guy was on about. Snyder grinned, then swept two fingers across his nexus. Cavallon's knees hit the cold metal floor before he even registered the lance of hot pain firing through his left arm and down his spine. His vision faltered, and for a few endless moments he knew nothing outside of the pain, each grueling second ten times worse than the agony he'd experienced when receiving either set of imprints. When it finally ceased, a stockpile of leftover pain lingered along every nerve on the left side of his body. But at least it was manageable. He could function again, use his other senses. He glanced around, realizing he was on his knees, sitting back on his feet. The taste of blood filled his mouth as he panted through gritted teeth. Through a haze of wetness in his eyes, Snyder's boots approached. Then came a voice muffled through a fog of pain. See, back on the Argus, they were all fighting like idiots and things were getting chaotic, so she unlocked imprint control to all circuiters. Snyder crouched down and took Cavallon's chin in his fingers, forcing him to meet his gaze. And she's not here to protect you now, is she, Princeps? He stuck out his lower lip. She left you all alone. Void, you guys, Emery hissed, Leave him alone. She tried to push past, but the tall woman blocked her, gripping Emery's shoulder and shoving her back to pin her against the wall. Cavallon somehow found the will to reach up and shove Snyder away, weakly. The circuitor's shoulder barely turned back with the pathetic attempt. He snickered. Is that all the fight you've got left? He gave a small shrug. That's probably my fault. I figured we'd see what the intensity slider was like at max. The EX had it at a measly 20%. Kind of lenient, in my opinion. What do you expect me to say? Cavallon growled, surprised at how haggard and dry his voice came out. I wasn't even born when that damn edict passed. I had nothing to do with it. That's not the point, Snyder said. My family suffered, so his family is going to suffer. Cavallon glared. It's hilarious that you think he gives two shits if I suffer. You'd be doing him a favor. Snyder smiled. Nice try. Your pathetic lies only make this all the more fun for me. The wash of copper flooded Cavallon's mouth as he clenched his fists. As much pride as he took in his shit-cutting prowess over the last 24 hours, enough was enough. He'd tried. Shit-cutting wasn't going to cut it this time. In a rush of glittering metallic, the gold and bronze squares on his right arm dispersed from their default formation, speeding his movements as he leapt to his feet. With imprint-fueled force, he lunged for Snyder. But the man had already started to swipe at his nexus controls. Cavallon had been too slow. A tidal wave of hot pain tore through him, igniting every nerve. 
His muscles seized, and his view of the hallway tilted and skewed until his cheek met the floor. Sparks of azure light cut across the backs of his clenched eyelids. A shrill, grating tone rang through his ears, vibrating across his skin, clawing through every one of his muscles and burrowing deep into his bones. The pain pulsed, echoing, building on itself, an endless feedback loop of agony. It was an unprecedented level of pain, one that raised the bar that set a new standard for intolerable. But Snyder had already set it to max. Why was it so, so much worse this time? Then, somehow, between the seconds, came a brief, almost imperceptible moment of clarity. Cavallon detached from the pain just long enough to feel it. How his royal imprint struggled to climb up his arms and down his legs and across his back. How they jittered along his skin in disjointed, drunken motions. And how the black sentinel imprints on his left arm grew hotter and hotter with each passing second. Each square an electric diode firing a lightning bolt's worth of energy out across his body and into his royal imprints. Then he realized... This was it. Volatile interfacing. This was what they'd been warning him about. Something that could really, actually get him killed. With a rush of panic, he realized he had to not use them. He had to stop using them. The millisecond the thought fully registered in his brain, his royal imprints terminated. Yet instead of sliding back to their default formation as they always had, as they never, not even once, hadn't, they simply stopped dead in their tracks, like hundreds of tiny metallic bits marooned all across his pale skin. The grueling feedback-like waves of electric pain ceased immediately, leaving only the regular torture caused by the activated sentinel imprints. But that was cool and easy, and almost tolerable in comparison. His muscles still twitched with the residual pain, body curling instinctively into a fetal position. His nails dug into his palms as his hands tightened into fists, and the urge to summon his imprints persisted. He had to use every ounce of will to fight his instincts to assure his royal imprints didn't reactivate while this bastard had control over the other set. Though hell, maybe he had it coming. After all, he'd sat on his hands for 27 years without doing a damn thing. He'd cowered behind brazen indifference, and it had taken his own father's death to snap him out of it for fuck's sake. Maybe he really was the bad guy. A high-pitched voice shouted through the din, angry. Emery, maybe? He tried to peel his blistering eyes open, but the pain grew all-consuming. He poured all of his efforts into focusing on keeping his royal imprints inactive. He became vaguely aware of boots impacting his stomach over and over, deep, thudding blows in the meat of his guts. The strikes themselves didn't hurt, as his nerves were already overloaded with the pain of the activated obsidian imprints, but he knew the beating would hurt later, assuming they didn't intend to kill him. So he tried to clutch at his stomach, protected as much as he could with his forearms, until someone turned him over and held his wrists down then fists joined in. He didn't fight back. He just waited for it to end, doing his best to deflect as many of the impacts as he could. He just had to hold out. Although, 
What was he holding out for exactly? Rake had left. Jacken and Warner had left. Puck sat glued to a screen in the control room, trying to save everyone's lives. Mesa would never be able to stop brutes like this. No one was coming to save him. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow Stories from Among the Stars on your preferred podcast app to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can find The Last Watch and its sequel, The Exiled Fleet, wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thank you. <laughs>